All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello? Dear listeners, it's Manouche. When was the last time you were in a phone booth? The phone booth is actually an important part of American history that you could go into this little box and close the folding door behind you and be alone is at the crux of a pivotal Supreme Court case about the very nature of privacy in the modern world. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. The way it worked was that they, there was approximately five engines operating on the team. Mr. Cap- this week, not just one, but the two court cases which set the stage for the looming fight over what rights we have to keep our digital stuff private. It was stated that far more reaching means of invading privacy have become available to the government. Both cases put the telephone at the center of what we consider a reasonable expectation of privacy. The sounds would be reflected into the microphone and then ultimately to a tape recorder, which recorded the conversation. But as the world moved from landlines to smartphones, where and when we can be private is up for grabs. And it matters a lot. The Bill of Rights. It puts limits on the U.S. government's power. And the Fourth Amendment specifically is about protecting our privacy, even though the word doesn't even appear in that one flowery run-on sentence. So the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizure shall not be violated, nor shall a warrant issue, but based upon probable cause. This is Laura Donahue, professor of law at Georgetown Law. Laura is also director of Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology, and she's an expert on the Fourth Amendment. And according to Laura, we have to go back to Old England to understand where these words in the Fourth Amendment come from and why our founding fathers insisted on using them. They were Englishmen first and foremost, the founding generation, and they expected that their rights as Englishmen would traverse the Atlantic. Rights for English men. Yeah, nobody else. Among the rights they expected to bring with them was basically that law enforcement couldn't just bust into your house whenever it wanted to. The idea in English history was that the crown could not violate the sanctity of the home to target individuals who might see the world differently than they did, who might have a different political view. 
Those rights dated back to England and a ruling in 1603 that said every man's house is his castle. You've probably heard that phrase. But over in the New World, it was a different ballgame. The king started issuing warrants called writs of assistance, literally pieces of paper that gave customs officials written permission to search all the buildings in Boston Harbor as they looked for smuggled goods. And they were using these writs to go into private citizens' homes, to go into warehouses, to go into places of business. And they had no right to do that under English common law. People in the colonies were not happy about this. And the concern was that if the Crown could issue a general warrant that then could be used to find evidence of criminality, there was no need to have probable cause beforehand. There was no need to have any direct knowledge of wrongdoing. Then this could be used to essentially go into individuals' homes to collect their private papers and to target potential political opponents of the Crown. One person who was outraged by the king's actions was, ironically, his own legal representative in Boston. This was a man named James Otis. And Otis resigned in protest against these general warrants. And then he took his anger a step further by becoming the lawyer representing the other side, all of Boston's merchants, against the king. And on one pivotal day in 1761, he stood before the Massachusetts Supreme Court and gave a five-hour speech, calling General Warrants the worst instrument of arbitrary power and defending our right to be left alone unless there is criminal evidence. John Adams, our second president, later wrote, then and there, the child liberty was born. This was really seen as the first shot of the revolution in many ways. And so in 1787, when the founding generation drafted the Constitution, Madison, when he was tasked with writing the Bill of Rights, he announced in Congress that one of the rights that he would protect would be the right against general warrants. And that became the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. And it states clearly that a search warrant needs to be looking for something specific. Keep that in mind, because in a minute... What the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure means if law enforcement is looking for something that the founding fathers could never have dreamed of. What is happening right now is the government is monitoring traffic upstream, like that crosses Internet servers, and they are scooping up that traffic and then they're using it to bring charges, which is essentially a general warrant. What the Fourth Amendment means for protecting our privacy when the Pony Express is now Gmail. Stick with us. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and we're talking about our civil rights and privacy and how we make sure we hold on to what the Founding Fathers wanted for Americans. The whole point of the Fourth Amendment was to protect privacy. Let's go back to our Fourth Amendment expert, law professor Laura Donahue. So even if they don't mention the word, the idea was that the government cannot unduly interfere in your private life without sufficient cause. And for about 200 years, Laura Donahue says, the Fourth Amendment as it was worked pretty well. Up until the 1960s, when a bookie named Charles Katz comes along. Katz lives in L.A., and the FBI gets a tip-off that he's using phone booths up and down Sunset Boulevard to make his bets across state lines, which is illegal. 
Here's the government's lawyer, John Martin, explaining in court how the feds got their proof. Early in February of 1965, the agents received information from reliable informants, which led them to believe that the petitioner in this case, Mr. Katz, was using the public phone, this particular public phone booth, to place wages in interstate by calling Massachusetts. So the FBI goes to the phone company and gets the records for that booth, confirming that, yes, Katz was on the horn talking to another bookie out of state. After they had all of this information, they then set up a system involving a team of five agents. But then how did the team of agents record Katz in the phone booth? Here's Katz's lawyer, Harvey Schneider. Mr. Katz would leave his apartment building on a certain specified time. The agents would see him leave. They would radio to another group of agents who were waiting near the booth. This agent would run over and activate the microphone that was taped on top of the booth. The recording they make nails Katz. He's convicted. But he appeals, citing his right to privacy. And it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the guy wins. The justices side with Katz, saying that when he used a phone booth, he expected his conversation to be private. The court's decisions recently and for a long time, I believe, have indicated that the right to privacy is what's protected by the Fourth Amendment. We feel that the right to privacy follows the individual. This 1967 ruling was a big deal for the Fourth Amendment and your privacy. It shifted the conversation from protecting places to protecting people. So in that case, you had a gambler enter a phone booth and close the door, and the police put a listening device on the outside of the phone booth. And the court said when Katz closed the phone booth door, he expected that nobody would listen to his conversation. That's a protected conversation. So under those circumstances, you have to get a warrant to obtain the information. So the court says Katz's conversation in the phone booth should be treated the same as if he had it at home. The FBI needed to get a warrant if they wanted to access it, which they didn't do. Thanks, phone booth. But then another seminal privacy case comes along a decade later. It's the 1970s. Smith versus Maryland. This time... A woman named Patricia McDonough is mugged in Baltimore. Someone grabs her purse. Afterwards, she's giving the police a description of the robber and his car, a 1975 Monte Carlo. And then something strange happens a few days later. Somebody started calling her on the telephone and told her to come out on her porch. And when she did so, that same car, the 1975 Monte Carlo, drove very slowly past her house. So she called the police, and the police had a patrol car in the neighborhood. They saw the car, they ran the license plate, and they saw it belonged to Michael Lee Smith. So they went to the phone company. The police wanted to install something called a pen register. This is a device that records all the numbers called from a particular telephone line. So they'd be able to see what number Smith was dialing from his home phone. And the phone company said, sure, no problem, you could do that. And they said, we want to see if Michael Lee Smith is the one calling Patricia McDonough. So they put this tap on the line, and within 24 hours, he calls Patricia McDonough. And so they use the information to get a warrant. They go into his home, and there's the phone book turned down to Patricia McDonough's No, name. come on. Yeah, so, I mean, this is an open-shut case. But 
when it comes to court, Michael Lee Smith says, hey, I have a private interest in the numbers that I dial. This case also goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Michael Lee Smith's lawyer was Howard Carden. Here he is in court in 1979. But it kind of sounds like 2017. As modern technology brings to society an improved standard of living and new conveniences, it also presents a serious challenge to the personal rights of an individual. Cardin basically argued that if the police wanted to see who Smith called, under the Fourth Amendment, they'd need a warrant, which they didn't get. And Smith had a reasonable expectation that who he called was a private matter. And the court says, no, you don't, because in order to make that call, you pick up your phone, you dial it, but then the phone company, right, has to connect you to another line. So you're giving that information away. And so this case, Smith v. Maryland, says basically once you give that information to a third party, you no longer have a privacy interest. This becomes known as the third-party doctrine. And what that means is that once you share your information with a corporation, a private corporation like the phone company, you can say goodbye to any reasonable expectation of privacy. It's thanks to this case that police don't need a warrant to get your phone records. But they can't listen to what you say or record what you say without one. And now maybe you're thinking, well... I don't have a landline anymore, and I can't remember the last time I was in a phone booth. So how do these cases about the expectation of privacy apply to me now, here in the future? So if you fast forward, you know, four decades and suddenly we're in an electronic age, the government's argument in the NSA surveillance cases, well, according to Smith v. Maryland, you have no privacy interest in the information that you confide to your phone, right? So information that's actually inside your home, inside your computer, right, inside your files, inside your diary, that's protected. But information that's held by a third party, and no, that information is not protected. Sure, those documents on your hard drive at home are private. But thanks to Smith v. Maryland, anything you share with a third party is fair game. Yeah, well, if you think about it, there's so much information that is available now out there. So if you think about just locational data, right, you have RFID devices, uh, GPS chips, you have vehicle monitoring systems, VMS, you have CCTV with some of it is biometrically enabled, right? You have all of these ways that individuals can be monitored as they move through public space. Police cannot search our cell phones without a warrant, thanks to a 2014 Supreme Court ruling. But what about all the information, your location, your emails, passing through the phone, in and out to companies that provide the services? The highest court hasn't ruled on that yet. So what digital information can the police access without a warrant? All of this is up for debate. Think of the recent case when law enforcement asked Amazon for anything the Amazon Echo had recorded in the home of a man accused of murder. Did he share his conversations with Amazon? What does share even mean? The other thing that you wrote about that really surprised me was that law enforcement regularly uses search terms to bring criminal charges against individuals. I didn't know they could do that. What is happening right now is the government is monitoring traffic upstream, like that crosses Internet servers, and they are scooping up that traffic and then they use it to bring charges, which is 
essentially a general warrant, right? We have returned to general warrants, which was the whole point of the Fourth Amendment was to prohibit general warrants in the United States. So you're saying they're basically doing the virtual version of what the founding fathers said. Uh, uh, uh. You can't say that you think there's something there and then go and get it. You have to know it's there. And what they're saying is, let's just look around. Maybe there's something here. Oh, look what we found. And then they press the criminal charges. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening right now. And then there's the information we don't even know that we're sharing with companies that we didn't sign up to. You have so many ways that individuals can be monitored as they move through public space. Retail Genius, they offer to retailers the service that when an individual walks into your store, they will tell you where that individual just was, where they are likely to go next based on patterns. So you can monitor phones with GPS and with Bluetooth monitoring. They will tell you their income. They will tell you how much money they're likely to spend and how much time they're likely to spend in your store. Is this happening right now? This is happening right now. You know, and the government's argument is frequently, well, if they can do it, why can't we do it? You know, the the obvious response to that is because you have prisons and guns <laughs> and the death penalty. Like, you know, like there, there are a lot of things the government can do um, that are very coercive, right? And that's why. And another reason why it's different is when you entrust information to one company, you are not saying, oh, and I want you government to know, you know, that this is who I'm dating, right? I want you to know that this is who I'm actually spending my time with. This is what I believe, right? These are the churches I go to, right? Or the synagogues I go to. This is what I eat. This is the kind of diet I keep. That's not the deal, right? When you contract with a company, you're not contracting to give the government all this private information about you. One of these arguments that you frequently hear is, well, we won't look at it. We will just keep it. And then if we have a really good reason, right, then we will access all of this information about you. And the problem with that is, If the government were to put a camera in my shower and say, I'm not going to look at it. I'm just going to record you showering, Mm. but I'm only going to look at it when I have a really good reason. It doesn't make it any better because privacy is determined not from the government's perspective, but from the individual citizen's perspective. And the moment that camera goes up, it affects your privacy. There is this paradox, though. Sometimes law enforcement can use the information they get to stop horrible people from doing horrible things. I asked Laura about cases where collecting information leads to good stuff, like the online pedophile ring that law enforcement recently cracked. How can you say that nabbing pedophiles is a bad thing, right? Is the reason why we haven't really moved forward on this is because we see sort of the benefits of it And those are the short-term benefits over the sort of longer, harder road to walk, which is the basic right to privacy. Yeah, you know, that certainly is part of it. So what often happens is the the cases that come forward are like the most horrendous cases. So it was a San Bernardino case. It was supposedly just for terrorism. It was for the worst of the worst cases. All these people had died. And yet as soon as they had access to the Apple phone, Director Comey announces that they're now thinking about using it in hundreds of criminal cases across the country that, of course, have nothing to do with terrorism. And this is getting back to the slippery slope concern. We have, since 9-11, steadily weakened the standards under which we can collect information for national security purposes. We have steadily weakened it. And what we've seen is that information is now being used in unrelated criminal 
contexts. And the problem is weaker standards in national security are basically creeping over into criminal law. And in the process, our rights are narrowing. It comes down to citizens, right? It comes down every generation has to fight for the rights that the founding generation tried so hard to protect. These rights are not set in stone, and these rights can crumble, so you have to be vigilant. This was part of the revolution, was that right was being violated with general warrants by the Crown. And James Otis stood up to speak, and as John Adams said, something profound changed in America. Mm -hmm. It goes to the heart of who we are as a country, that we have rights as held against the government, and that those rights are what we are fighting to protect, that we don't give up those rights as part of a national security concern. That is what defines us as a country. And to do that, we need to return to the basic insight of the founding generation, which is when people are under surveillance, their behavior changes, their intimate relationships are affected, their ability to question the world and their role in it is harmed, their ability to challenge the government, to raise political objections is hurt, and that as a society, those values are still central to who we are. You know, what I'm really trying to put my finger on is why this is not something that we're talking about all the time. Why this was not an issue in the election. Why are we so complacent about it? Well, I know a lot of people that aren't complacent about it and that care very deeply about it. I think some people are afraid and there is a lot of fear of potential harm that could be done to the United States and to ourselves and our families and our friends. And it is true. There are bad things out there that can harm us. It is also true that at the founding, there were bad things out there that could harm the country. The country stood on the brink of existence. When they drafted the 1787 Constitution, the fear was, was that the country would cease to exist. And yet there was no exception for the prohibition on general warrants. When Madison wrote it in, there was no exception. There was to be no general warrant. This was so central to who they were that they weren't willing to give it up just for security. They wanted it to be one of the defining characteristics of who we are as a country. And that takes courage. That takes courage to stand up and say, no, privacy matters. Um, It's also a long-term concern, right? To say that when privacy is invaded, it's not all at once. It's little by little by little. This is changing our society and it's changing it in ways that will have profound long-term implications for who we are as a country. Laura Donahue, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The Fourth Amendment The challenge of privacy in this century is going to come right back to this big statement that was made so long ago. And as we've heard, the judgment will be in the details and interpretations of it. We're laying the groundwork here, people. Our big project about privacy launches officially on January 30th. It's called The Privacy Paradox. And if these cases... And Laura Donahue and the concept of figuring out what democracy means these days have intrigued you and made you want to know more. You can sign up right now at privacyparadox.org. We'll be wrestling with the pros and cons of sharing our information 
And next week, we'll be talking about how all that information that we're sharing, willingly and sometimes less so, just might be the answer to helping solve some of the world's biggest problems. Hyperbole? Maybe not. Maybe. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Megan Cunane and Jenna Cagle for their production support. The audio of the Supreme Court cases was from Oye. They're amazing. And a very special thank you to Laura Donahue. Check out her most recent book, The Future of Foreign Intelligence, Privacy and Surveillance in a Digital Age. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. So the FBI goes to the phone company, see, and they get the records for the booth, confirming that, yes, Katz was on the horn talking to another bookie out of state. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> no, we can't, we can't.